think we're... we're lucky or... just a terrible accident. Oh, sweetheart, I think we're so lucky. I think... we're one great big giant smash-up. Hello and welcome to the Lodgers Sorted Cinema's Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined as always by Kate Redabom. Hello. And last week I lied when I said that we had our last returning guest because returning once again is the fabulous Mr. Byron Davies. Hi, thank you so much for having me on the show again. Yay. And it's another big and it's another big week. Lots to discuss, lots to get into real quick before we launch into things. Um I don't know if anyone's noticed this, but we're actually the only Twin Peaks podcast on the internet. So <laughs> if you think that's a worthy thing to be doing, you should rate and review us on iTunes. Um, otherwise, people may not hear about Twin Peaks. They may not know that it's happening. How will they know unless you promote us? <laughs> Just yeah. you know, throwing that out there. <laughs> anyway, uh, rates, reviews, they're all good. Uh, as you know, the, the, the show and therefore the podcast are wrapping up soon. But, you know, the more people can hear us through time and you know, enjoy the nerdery, the better for everyone. We got so much to talk about, so we may as well just get into it. Part 15 of The Return, perhaps the sweetest, saddest, and one of the most unsettling episodes of The Return yet, although I guess that will remain to be seen as we as we go ahead and judge. And I'm once again sort of at a loss as to uh, where to start. We may as well start with sort of the concept of fan service or, or things... Things that will make the fans happy, which, you know, in a lot of series happens on an almost weekly basis. You know, in theory, I'm thinking of, you know, Game of Thrones, for instance. But it's been fairly elusive, perhaps purposely so, on the return. However, this week we got pretty much what seems to be a bow on one of the series' very longest-running sort of story arcs in terms of character and relationships. And I'm talking, of course, about uh, Big Ed and Norma, and of course preceded by the uh, the scene with Nadine and her shovel and her confession. So, um, I mean, actually, I want to start with you, Byron. How did you feel about seeing um, in what's been like a pretty deliberately challenging and abstruse season, you know, s- such an overt piece of, um, for lack of a better term, crowd-pleasing? I found it both cathartic and challenging. I don't think there are that many scenes of such catharsis in Lynch's work that I can really think of. Two that came to mind. One that came, one came to mind just because it's it's one that I always well, I I I cried during this scene. Byron, I was like debating for this podcast just recording myself like sobbing and sending that in as a podcast. We'll see if I can <laughs> if I can be more uh, coherent than that, but I've seen it now twice and like the sobbing happens throughout both episodes. So no shame about crying at all. Anyway, please continue. <laughs> well, so I, I wanted to so I, I started thinking about what other scenes in Lynch's work I've I've cried during one is is in Mulholland Drive in the Rebecca Del Rio song Jorando, which enormously cathartic scene, an enormous release. And the other is at the end of the straight story. 
interaction between Richard Farnsworth and, and Harry Dean Stanton. Um, one thing that interests me about all three of these scenes is that there is some sort of interest in something external going on in, in all of them. That is, it's not as though the, the characters can just face each other and confess their love or be honest with each other. There, it has to be mediated by some, some additional factor. Uh, in the case of uh, the straight story, it's it's the car, or, or rather the, the lawnmower. Uh, uh, Harry Dean Stanton says, "Oh, you you drove all the way in in that lawnmower," uh, and, and that's how the that's how the movie ends. Uh, it, it, as though their their emotions can only be externalized or displaced onto onto an external object, uh, and and that's their way of communicating after after being estranged for so many years. And, and similarly in, in Mulholland Drive, the, it's, it's uh, the, in the Club Silencio scene, it's, it's mediated by something external, namely a, a scene of spectatorship, something going on on the stage. Now in, with this scene between Ed and Norma, there is some, also something external going on, namely the, the sale of the franchise. And so it's, it's really interesting that uh, this emotional change is predicated upon an economic transaction. That this economic transaction has to go forward before before Ed and Norma's relationship can go forward. But the other thing, so so that those were all of the things that I was thinking about and just trying trying to make sense of my own uh, catharsis and 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 my own my own crying uh, during during that scene. But it was also a very challenging scene in that um, not only is, are we teased a little bit you know, to, to think that things, in fact, aren't going to work out and Ed is going to end up heartbroken again. But we also, there's also something, there's even a question lingering even after the conclusion of the scene, uh, because we have seen something like this with them before. Uh, I mean, season two ends. Uh, season, there's a scene in season two where uh, Ed and Norma are together for to, to, to be married, and that's when Nadine recovers her memory. Um, and so it raises these questions about um, how representative we're supposed to take of these scenes and how significant it is that in this in this series... Um, the series can kind of play with an ambiguity between whether a scene is really a matter of dramatic progression or whether it's something just symptomatic of a larger repetition. Mm. Or what, whether, you know, so there is this question about whether this is something, because we have seen this happen between, or something like this happen between Ed and Norma before and between Ed, Norma, and Nadine before. Uh, something roughly similar. It raises questions about whether this is something that they may perhaps go through every year or something like that. Wait, Byron, are you trying to take our catharsis away from us? <laughs> well, God damn it, Byron. <laughs> Let us have this. Absolutely. But I, I guess this, this came to my mind in connection with other scenes in part 15 and, and related episodes, related parts where this question of repetition and whether a, a supposed dramatic progression is really just a rehearsal or a repetition of something uh, 
very common in the relationship or symptomatic of some, some, something repetitive or stuck about a relationship or questions like that are coming up. And of course, I'm thinking of something like uh, the interactions between Audrey and Charlie, where yeah. you have this question of whether, well, is this real? Is this really a dramatic pro- progression? Or is it artificial? Is it the rehearsal of something? And, uh, and I was even thinking of this in connection with the appearance of another Norma, Norma Desmond, uh, in Sunset Boulevard later in the episode. And that this is really how Norma Desmond lives uh, in, in, in the movie Sunset Boulevard, that you know, her, her life really just consists of a series of, of rehearsals for a supposed comeback. And that, um, uh, and, and that even got me thinking that that's very, that the relationship between Audrey and, and Charlie is, is very similar to the relationship between Norma Desmond and um, uh, Joe Gillis, uh, William Holden's character in, in Sunset Boulevard, and also uh, certainly uh, Norma Desmond's relationship with uh, Max, played by Eric von Stroheim in, in Sunset Boulevard, uh, where uh, there is, again, the question of whether there's a real dramatic progression going on or whether this is just... Um, rehearsals or others living according to a particular individual's fantasies. I don't at all want to tarnish, uh, uh, raise questions, too many questions about our, our feeling, our, our, the very real feeling of catharsis that, that we experience with, with um, Ed and Norma. But I do think it needs to be put in this broader context of what other kinds of, what, what other kinds of relationships are we getting? What other sorts of portraits are we getting? And I think this is very important in understanding what kind of a series this is, because in the original series, we had something like a soap opera where dramatic progressions were real, at least in the sense of pushing a story forward and a story that could, in principle, go on forever, as in principle, a soap opera could. Whereas here, we're getting something much more contained. Um, We're getting something, we know that this ends uh, we, we, know, we, we know that this is going to end soon, that this world is going to be closed, at least for now. And uh, so th- that means that the series that Lynch can play with this ambiguity between actual dramatic progressions and um, something more like a, a portrait of uh, a portrait of a relationship and, um, and also the idea that maybe what appears to be a dramatic progression is really just um, uh, symptomatic of some sort of larger repetition or something that goes on all the time. There's a lot of great stuff in what you just said. It'll probably take us a while to unpack all of it across the whole episode. But I, I think it's fascinating that you went right to this question of repetition um, Byron, because this is the thing I've been thinking about a lot lately uh, in terms of many episodes, in terms of these questions of, of basically like, duration and the feeling of time passing quite slowly in a lot of instances in the return, the way Lynch is sort of amping that up on the one hand. But then on the other hand, these sort of very explicit nods to things like repetition, even in the explicit reuse of scenes. Um, and so I, this is like, for me, I think you're absolutely right. This is like a defining tension in the new episodes. And one of the things I've been thinking about here is that that really what is going on there is there is a sort of complex way in which um, Lynch and Frost are are signaling the idea that time passing does not necessarily equal change or things improving or things freeing themselves from repetition, right? Like the idea of duration on its own doesn't necessarily produce 
different forms of life. And I think that the scene with Norman, Norman and Ed is like a really interesting example of that. Um, but I think on the other side, I think what's interesting about what you point out, Byron, um, this question of whether or not, you know, this scene has happened before with Norman and Ed or whether or not we're supposed to sort of think this is the final answer to this question. There will be no more change and they're going to be together forever or not. I think what's interesting about that is that my answer is it doesn't really matter. It like the idea that this might fade or it might go away or Nadine might come back and, you know, get back in the mix or something. It doesn't really um, change any of the kind of like ecstatic uh, effective quality of this scene. And I, I, there are so many things going on in this sequence that like, I could talk about them a lot. This, this might be one of my favorite scenes in like the whole Lynch, uh, over, which is saying something. And I don't know, being sort of hit with this like incredible emotional punch right out of the gate for the episode was a disorienting way to start. And then it, it just gets more disorienting as we go forward. But, um, but like a couple of things I wanted to say about it. And then I want to hear what you think about it, Simon. Um, a couple of things I wanted to say about it. A, I think it's really interesting, this question when Nadine shows up and is talking to Ed, if this is effectively the payoff of the Jacoby storyline with the shovel and like the, the podcast and all of this stuff, which I, for some reason I find to be hilarious. Like the idea that we've had so much Jacoby and this is the payoff. And I actually think it's like a really kind of beautiful payoff. The idea that like his kind of nonsense might translate into like an actual sort of emotional truth for someone I found to be really interesting. Um, that's the first one. The second thing that I find stunning about that sequence is like the use of the music is the Otis Redding song. Um, and not just in the sense that it's like pure emotion because it is that and it's amazing, but is again, the fact that Lynch is sort of modulating it so that it drops in and out, which mirrors the way that like they're playing with our expectations about whether this is going to happen or not. It's this sort of stopping and starting. But then even more than that, I love the idea that they use the live version of that song because it's as much as the music is present on the soundtrack, there's also this sort of idea of like clapping and an unseen audience is present in the scene. And there is like this heartbreaking, beautiful way in which it's like the audience gets to be really part of like this moment between Norman and Ed. And I, I don't know that like, gets me as much as, you know, Everett McGill's like voice cracking or like that hand, like Norma's hand coming on his shoulder from out of frame. It's like, oh man, I, I will never be able to watch that sequence without like weeping. <laughs> so two thoughts. One, I, I, I feel that we can't discuss the sequence without just acknowledging how sadly novel it is just to see like two septuagenarians making out on screen. <laughs> like it just does not happen in media ever so like i i just enjoyed that as like an aspect of representation i also don't want to rob anyone of catharsis but i had a thought during this sequence the use of the live version of i've been loving you too long i mean it's it it works completely on the level that you mentioned kate but i have to say what it immediately made me think of was the way the live version of what a wonderful world was used in lonely souls that made me think about Becky, whose fate is uh, up in the air. And I think, I mean, if, I, I can't have been the only one who needed to rewind and turn the uh, closed captioning on for Caleb Landry Jones' scene, which maybe we can talk about later. But, you know, there's certainly indications in this episode that she may no longer be for Twin Peaks slash this world, although obviously death is somewhat uh, is a is a somewhat ambiguous state in this universe sometimes. But the use of that live recording, that was one of my first thoughts was, this is both beautiful and, in context, incredibly ominous. 
Well, I, there's something about like the intensity of the scene in and of itself. I think that like almost bodes on like almost verges on the painful in mm-hmm. you know like in the sense of like ecstasy is as again i think i used this explanation when we were talking about the season two finale but like the idea of ecstasy is like a loss of self right i mean and, and here like lynch kind of um thematizes that or like materializes that in this idea that like ed and norma like coming together you know like explodes into this shot of the sort of mountain and then the sky and it's like the clouds moving and it's like it's it's not even them anymore it's like just this sort of pure emotional state and like it it's it's like um it's derealizing which is that that the name for that term that i think it's like a psychological um uh sort of not disease but uh breakdown or something where it's like you lose track of who you are effectively and it's like lynch is like getting close to that and then it's i hadn't really put together that idea simon that like that might might be sort of almost foreshadowing this loss of Becky, especially when you have these scenes of like Shelley sort of you know joyfully kind of crying over Ed and Norma getting together. And so again, I I definitely think that's there. That's a possibility. It's it's all mixed together. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think Becky's definitely a goner, but if it turns out to be that way, then I think this scene will be impossible to watch without that like being a huge pall over it. I also, just because it, it was interesting reading about this, I noticed people, I think uh, Joel Baca was one of them, and then a few other people who who had, like, very opposite reactions to this scene and, and found the scene to be more, uh, like, maybe of the register where, you know, like, our guest Matt, how Matt felt about the, um, the, the little boy being run over by the truck sequence in the sense of, like, it, it, it being um, not, like, I don't know, ironic, for, for lack of a better term, like, that it is... It's it's not to be taken seriously, and and they they like weren't that crazy about it. Actually, they felt like it kind of didn't do Ed and Norma justice. I feel like I'm not even equipped to like address that as <laughs> as a reaction because I feel the exact opposite. Like I feel like there could not have been a better scene for them. And I, and I I just brought it up because I think it's such a fascinating like example of how you know how different reactions can be to things in general but i think again like how lynch is very how how twin peaks is very good at like creating those kinds of spaces where you can have such variable reactions to sequences well i think that goes back to some old questions that have come up in the podcast over the course of my listening to it namely whether lynch whether lynch can ever lynch's um romanticism or uh, sincerity, apparent sincerity, can never be taken seriously given its apparently cynical context. And I think that uh, you guys have been correct to uh, say that, no, in fact, these, these can work in equipoise. These can work together. That Lynch is, in fact, reflecting on something uh, very real about human existence and the different perspectives that we can take on it. And that involves moving in both romantic and cynical spaces. And I think that that's, I mean, it's just not, not, not everyone watches him that way, but um, I, I, that, that's the way that I prefer to watch him as walking in both spaces. I, I will say that I hope that Becky is okay, not only because I, I like the character and the performance and because it would be very upsetting, but also because I feel as though if they're going to do something that affects, you know, our core characters that deeply, I would prefer it to have happened with more time to go, more time to unpack it, more time to deal with it. But, you know, this is we're, we're I don't want to drift too far into the speculative lane, so I'll just leave that there. But as long as we're talking about sort of open heartedness and emotion and all these things, um, I guess we should 
the easiest segue to go to is to talk about um the uh the end of the log lady oh yeah 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 we're gonna let's just let's just rip that band-aid off here you know taking something that was sort of i guess you could call it productive subtext and making it text in a very in a very pronounced way that i can't say i was expecting and i i really can't think of an instance where like a a performer's death has been so not just organic you know not just written into the text but like so directly confronted and so directly woven in you know if you think about how you know long running series or film series have to pivot around or work around you know the the deaths of major performers there's it's always a bit of a ballet you you know you don't want to um you don't want to risk seeming exploitative but you don't want to you know ignore the audience's awareness and here there's none of that pussyfooting about really it's it's as direct a confrontation with that as you can possibly imagine and you know i had to pause for a moment to think about the the, the production aspect like the fact that when you know, I I'm I, I don't know for certain, but I'm assuming that when Michael Horace is sitting down to record the other end of that conversation, that she's already gone, and things like that are just so upsetting to me. Mm. But I'll be you know in, in a productive way, I hope. Well, yeah, I think that the stuff that you're picking up on there, like it 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 all is of a piece and adds to and sort of like amplifies the emotional quality of that scene. I mean, it's. It's interesting because this episode, like, we'll come back to it, but there was a ton of sort of, uh, you know, plot, like, development and, and possibly the, the development that everybody's been waiting for forever, which is, like, maybe Coop coming back, you know, all these things. There was a lot that happened in this episode. And yet, like, everybody is talking about the, uh, Catherine Coulson scene and the Ed and Norma scene, which I think is something, I think just should be remarked on in and of itself. The idea that, like, there is something going on that's so interesting and so strong with the emotional stuff here that it really kind of dwarfs, like, I don't know, the, the plot progression stuff or these other things. I think that's fabulous and I think it's rare. Uh, but anyway, so that, that was one part of it. But, um, what I was gonna say about this, oh yeah, so this idea that like this, this knowledge of her death and like the, the documentary aspect of this is like images of this person who is actually dying right before our eyes. Um, really does like amplify the, this sort of just pure sadness over this woman passing and over the character passing. I mean, you know, we should mention the idea that like Lynch and Frost here do this double move of like they've already acknowledged the actress dying at the end of the um, pilot premiere there. And then now we're acknowledging the character passing and like they're mm-hmm. both given equal weight, which is fascinating. Um, but I think as you say there too, Simon, it's like there's something so unsettling about this idea that like you want to be in a space of mourning for her and and yet really this is like a very confrontational scene and you know when when the shots of Catherine Coulson first open uh she's sort of looking off uh screen like she's looking to the left and and the camera isn't sort of directly in front of her but then towards the latter part of the conversation when she's saying her final words effectively the camera is framing her directly on she's looking basically into the camera and she's like kind of you know uh exclaiming that she's dying and it and Anyway, I wanted to say just like that, as you say, Simon, this is such a rare thing in, I don't know, particularly Western representations. I mean, this is maybe again, like maybe it's too facile to say this is like Lynch sort of his, his ability to kind of live maybe beyond some of the, the Western strictures of thinking or like his attraction to Eastern stuff. I think it's a bit simple to just put it that way. But anyway, you know, like representations of death are, are, avoided basically at all costs in uh in in western culture right i mean this is the idea of like 
bodies that are dying being moved into hospitals where they don't have to be looked at. Um, there's some like really fascinating writing by a woman named Vivian Sobchak, who's a film scholar, who's written a lot about like different kinds of ways that film handles representations of death. And she sort of talks about how like in Hollywood, there's like a proliferation of um, like violence being done, done to bodies and like the idea of like a threat to bodies. But but the actual like death itself is is never present, right? I mean, it's like, sure, bodies are destroyed, but but death itself remains this thing that's like always just out of reach. And some of that has to do with the fact that those are fictional characters and we know they're not really dying. Whereas here, we see them dying. And um, when you were saying you couldn't really think of other examples of this, Simon, the only other example I am kind of aware of as a similar comparison is... Um, a film by Nicholas Ray called Lightning Over Water. Yeah, Actually, maybe it's, yeah. not, maybe it's not by him. Maybe his wife got credit for it. I don't remember. But, like, Nicholas Ray, for people who don't know, was the director of um, Rebel Without a Cause. In and a like a Lonely Place. Yeah, a million yeah, other amazing things. He's, he's, like, fantastic. He's so interesting. Um, and then as he was dying, basically, uh, he, like, makes this film with... It is his wife, right? Do you remember, Simon? Uh, I think so, but don't yeah. quote me on it. But do quote Kate on it. <laughs> yes, my fault if I'm wrong. But but basically it's like it, it's a it's a sort of very odd thing where it's like them almost trying to film his death, like film the act of him dying in in a very strange way and it's it's a really interesting film, it's fascinating. Anyway, I'll just to say that like how how rare this is. This is with Catherine Coulson, it's yet another example I think of like just how like special and radical a lot of what uh The Return is doing. I think it's worth pointing out that Lynch, this is not new or unusual for Lynch either. He's done similar things in the past of, of casting ill actors and not, uh, um, and, and not hiding or their illness or even so much as uh, incorporating their illness into the story in any explicit way. Uh, so the, one example is uh, the casting of Richard Pryor in Lost Highway. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, while he had uh, when multiple scler sclerosis uh, at the end of his life, and also um, Richard Farnsworth in the Straight Story was was dying of cancer during the film the filming of, of 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 the Straight Story. Although I thought he kept that to himself, although I could be wrong. My understanding is that the reason why he had to walk with two canes was because uh, his legs uh, were weak from the cancer. Um, but uh, and so and, and my and my guess is that that was a feature of um, that that was something incorporated into the film that wasn't a part of the original story of, of Alvin Strait. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's evidently something that Lynch is is on Lynch's mind a lot. I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to talk about that scene. Even uh, you know, R.I.P. Catherine Coulson. She was she was amazing. Um, moving on. We'll move into the, as per usual, the openly speculative portion of the program and talk about uh, the adventures of Bad Coop at the convenience store. I have to say, I, I, I hate to repeat a joke to people, but um, I really loved Bront's tweet about this, which was, convenience store disappeared, didn't seem very convenient to me. <laughs> um, so we get, I mean, this is, people were talking about the connections to part eight last week, but actually I, I thought this sequence connected i mean more directly and more forcefully to that than anything in uh in last week's episode and of course we get bad coop actually going upstairs to the to the upper part of the convenience store where bob says said that where you know where bob is supposedly from where he grew up and uh we finally meet philip jeffries who is what exactly like a large kettle 
I, I noticed some people calling him a tin machine, which, you know, hearty horror. What else do we think Jeffries might have been? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I have lots of things to say about that, but uh, I don't know. Byron, do you have a take on the on the David Bowie tin kettle thing? Oh, I like Tin Machine, uh, but I um, I had thoughts on on Cooper uh, in, in that scene, but not so much the um, the contra- whatever contraption uh, Philip Jeffries is. I was impressed by the appearance of, of a radiator in, in the shot before, yeah. and, uh, and yeah. so much of the this and Part Eight and everything having to do with Part Eight seems to um, uh, seems to be lifted from from the iconography of a, of a racer head. And um, it's something that had even occurred to me in the past in connection with the, um, with, with the, uh, the, 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 the room above the convenience store, uh, as it appears in, in Fire Walk With Me, that it seems to be a kind of descendant of um, uh, Mary's family's house in, in, in Eraserhead, this kind of, uh, this very, um, this kind of, this very uh, gloomy uh, familial atmosphere, alternative familial atmosphere, um, and it's just and so the I, I took it that the, the 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 radiator was a kind of nod to to that old iconography. What I since you mentioned Cooper in that scene, um, what actually before I I get to my serious point, another jokey one, which is that uh, I just watched the new Wet Hot American Summer series. How I, couldn't help, yeah. I couldn't help but connect um, Jeffrey's turning into a tin machine to H. John Benjamin turning into a uh, into a can <laughs> of vegetables. Totally facile, but anyway. <laughs> to get back to Cooper, something that's fascinating about Bad Cooper in this sequence is that he finally seems to not be 10 steps ahead here. Yeah, yeah. He seems to be, um, as other people have noted, kind of in the more traditional Cooper position of, of trying to investigate and find answers. Which is, in, which is interesting, considering this might be the episode in which Cooper comes back, um, which we'll, I'm sure is something we'll talk about later. But, you know, this whole time he's been very, um, he's really commanded every scene that he's in and seems to, like, have, you know, with, with the exception of, you know, certain information he's trying to find out, really, like, total command of what's happening. But here he finally seems to confront a force that he doesn't command to the extent that he gets sort of matrixed out of the scene via via payphone or you know, landline to payphone um which is interesting yeah i mean i that was definitely the main thing that i took away in relation to cooper there was this this break particularly at the end of the sequence where the final time that he says who is judy he seems quite upset by not being able to figure this out like like quite threatened or something by it um and i i don't know there's a lot of interesting things in that scene with with him i mean for one thing this idea of like him the show very sort of overtly playing with this idea that that evil Coop is now our hero in a certain kind of way and has been all along. Like he is the one who's sort of outdoing things and making things happen and is like the narrative driver and is and is now literally stepping into the role of like the Twin Peaks fan that desperately wants to know who is Judy. I right. mean, I found this like a kind of a funny joke almost, this idea that like fans you know, 25 years ago when Firewalk With Me came out, like picked up on this who is Judy line. And I... You know, again, as we've discussed, my brain does not particularly work on the kind of mythos level. And so, like, you know, I just sort of hear this line of, like, who is Judy? And I just think, like, it's a non sequitur, like, no big deal. But, you know, people spend 25 years being like, we have to figure out who Judy is. And uh, the idea that Evil Coop is, like, the one who's going to step in to find that answer. I, f- I found that quite... um 
I, I I don't know, strange or something, yeah. Wait a second. Evil Cooper is the hero now because he beat the shit out of Richard Horn, which is like <laughs> the most heroic thing you can do. But yeah, no, this question of Judy, all of that stuff was great. I loved the line from Jeffries uh, to Evil Coop when he asks about that sort of flashback to Fire Walk With Me and, uh, and Cooper says, yes, you know, you mentioned Judy 25 years ago or whatever. And uh, and then Jeffrey says, you were, so you are a coop. And I, like, that's a really interesting line. I mean, I think it's easy to just sort of blow by it, but I think it's interesting that like a moment is taken to sort of remind us here that like, again, things are not quite so simple as just like, this guy is like a bad thing that we can all just throw away and that we have no relationship to. It's like, as you already said, Simon, it's like in a certain sense, he kind of, he is coop, right? I mean, it's like, he's part of coop but as much as we would like things to be this like clear binary between good and bad it's like there's some interesting muddying of that going on here which i quite liked that's exactly resident with my experience of the scene that he, uh, he it was it was a scene where evil cooper the emphasis was on cooper as opposed to evil but with mm-hmm. evil still there uh and that's that comes out in the fact that also we we learned that he shares continuity and memory with Cooper, uh, that yeah. uh, the, the flashback to the scene of Fire Walk with me uh, is is evidently a memory that uh, that Evil Cooper has, uh, it, it, together with the distortions of memory, like like the changed voice of, of Philip Jeffries, and uh, and also just in in the very earnest way in which Evil Cooper is interrogating Philip Jeffries, it's very very familiar to us from 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 Good Cooper. Yeah, no, I think that's all very true. I, I have another point, actually, that will lead us to the next scene, and I'll make it in a few minutes, that's sort of, again, this, like, murky, um, I don't know, breakdown, or, like, the murky way things are being explained or used in the return uh, versus the old show. But before before we move to the next thing, there was a couple of things I also wanted to mention here. I mean, we haven't even talked about, like, the amazing scene that is Evil Coop um, getting to the convenience store, going up the stairs, you know, sort of... Uh, blinking out of existence into this quote room above the convenience store which right again i find so funny as like almost this kind of like strange literalism of the return like the way the return is making something so literal like i i really never would have thought that like lynch and frost would have written would have spent so much sort of time and energy and like world around the idea of there actually being a room above a convenience store (laughs) like where things were happening i just i just didn't really think that was going to be a thing well, it's 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 literal, but it's also like there's a sense in which, you know, because as he's moving through this convenience store, it seems like he's also it's being intercut with um with the trees, right? Yes, and yeah. It, it, you almost get the feeling of like Twin Peaks is contained up there or something like that, like there's some sort of bizarre like interspatial relationship that's not one to one that I just found fascinating. I, this was, well, this is my point is about the woods. Uh, so, but let, let's go back to the woods because I think there's some interesting stuff there we should talk about. But, um, the other thing we haven't talked about yet is, uh, the fact that when Cooper, like, gets into this upstairs space, it is the room from Fire Walk With Me that's in yes. Laura's dream. Which, again, like, you know, Levy and I both kind of, like, jumped when we realized that. It's such a, I don't know, stunning, like, unnerving image. This idea of, like, of, of A again taking, something that had been sort of this like mental geography in Fire Walk With Me, which for, for fans who don't remember, this is when um, Laura is given a painting by Mrs. Tremont and told that it would look good in her room and she puts it up on her wall and then she has this like totally uncanny dream sequence where she sort of like 
in the painting at one point. It's it's insane. It's amazing. Um, anyway, this idea of like in the return, taking what had been a kind of purely mental geography and and making it physical. Um, it's it sort of like it interestingly mirrors what's going on with, again, this idea of the convenience store itself being real. I didn't really think that that convenience store was, again, going to be like a physical material place that we could go to. And of course, it's mushy because at the end, it, it sort of blinks out of existence. So maybe it's not. But, you know, when we saw it in part eight, I didn't really think like, oh, 50 years later, characters in the return are going to be driving to the convenience store. Right. So I, I don't know. Again, there's something really fascinating there about this sort of like taking mental stuff and making it physical and real, which is deeply strange and deeply un unnerving. Um, mm -hmm. But I loved it. I love seeing that room. Uh, and, it, yeah. and it's that sort of collision of the banal and the, and the unreal where it really is yeah. just a convenience store, but is it really just a convenience store? Yeah. And the, the magical cut where he opens the door and he's in the gas station or he's in the, um, the motel parking lot. I love that stuff. I mean, it's just, you know, it's like, of course, just like these are the things that cinema can do that other things can't do. But I, I just loved that. The, the door opening in the motel parking lot. I just thought that was great. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But I don't know. But before we talk about the woods or anything, is there any of that stuff that you wanted to add to, Byron? Only that I, I think that this uh, surprise in the significance of the convenience store is maybe part of a larger phenomenon that we're, we're finding in the progression of Twin Peaks uh, up to now, but since the very beginning, that who knows what mere accident is going to be made permanent and significant. I mean, that's that's the the, the surprise of of learning how uh, Bob was made, discovered uh, the the, the, ac the accident of of Frank Silva appearing mm -hmm. uh, in the mirror. And this, the reason why this is on my mind in connection with this scene is because uh, of the, the recurrence of flickering lights throughout it mm -hmm. and how, uh, as I understand it, um, though flickering lights had appeared in Lynch's work since, since Eraserhead, uh, um, the uh, flickering light above Laura Palmer's body in the pilot episode was, was a mere accident. That was just how mm -hmm. the light uh, was. Uh, and that was incorporated into the episode and yeah. it became a part of the permanent Twin Peaks iconography, these, these, these flickering lights. And um, it just reminds me, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, I, I suppose it's inevitable when, whenever I'm talking about film, that'll come back to Stanley Cavell in, in some way, like I did when I was last on the, the podcast, but at the end of the second edition of the world viewed Cavell's first book on film Cavell characterizes film in contrast with the theater, film as accident made permanent. Film has this capacity to make, uh, make permanent mere accidents uh, in, in virtue of its just registering accidents and, and it's being an automatic medium in that kind of way. And um, there's a real awareness of, of that, that uh, essence of, of film on, on Lynch's part in the way that he can take mere accidents and not only make them permanent in the sense of their, them being, they're being permanently registered on film, but having this grand significance, uh, like the way that Frank Silva's appearance ended up on, in the mirror ended up having this grand significance in the way that these flickering lights over Laura Palmer's body in the um, in the hospital uh, or or the the mortuary uh, um, had in the pilot and. Um, yeah, just just and and who knows? I mean, who knows what the origin of the reference to the convenience store was? Presumably, yeah. there's something very incidental and accidental about that. Uh, and yeah, it, it's it's really been uh, a series of surprises uh, in 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 this new 
this new series, a, a series of surprises in, in terms of what what is given significance and what not. And speaking of having to figure things out on the fly and you know what's what's shown isn't shown, what's important and not important, I found it fascinating this decision to have this sequence to have it happen between Stephen and and Gersten Hayward, um, characters you know whom we had not associated in that way, and then to have that first of all we have to do like all this all these mental gymnastics to figure out like w- to catch us up to that where th- th- that's not this is absolutely not a, like a mode of storytelling that we got from the original series yeah um, where we would where you would just have a relationship like that s- such as it is uh, sort of sprung on you out of nowhere like 16 17, 17 episodes in that's just that wasn't done so like clearly we're, we're, we're we've you know we've been working in a very different register for a long time but this is just another way in which it is different in another way it was it was just nice to see alicia witt get a little bit more to do even if it's you know mostly just a lot of whimpering and being groped by caleb landry jones as he maybe kills himself um, you know, as, as I've, as I've said before on the podcast and I've said before on other TV podcasts, if you don't see it happen, you really can't, you know, put any stock in it. But, um, yeah, so much is unsettling about that sequence. Um, not so unsettling is the apparent Mark Frost cameo that I just had to mention as the, as the guy walking his dog. I didn't know that was him immediately, but it's one of those cameos where, you know, it's a cameo, even if you don't know who it is. I yeah, I didn't. Cute. I didn't catch it until you get the close up of him talking to Carl Rod at the end. I was like, "Oh, Frost." Um, <laughs> but anyway, I yeah, there's a lot going on in that scene. Um, I mean, the stuff that I wanted to say about like the woods, uh, which which I think matters for the for the Gerson uh, Hayward and Stephen scene because you you know you don't go to them right away. You start off with this sort of like slow movement through the woods. You watch the guy walking his dog, and again, this follows right after the evil coop scene where we've had these like really, as you said, really interesting. Um, shots that sort of map the geography of the woods onto the convenience store, right? And this was the shot that I was talking about the previous week that I feel like I sort of randomly inserted into conversation and I, I couldn't really understand, I couldn't really make a case for its significance, but I was like, there's something really interesting about this shot where Lynch is just sort of moving the camera through the air, like 50 feet above the ground. And, and it's such a, like an unusual and striking shot. And then I, I was like vindicated to see that it really does have some sort of like meaning within the larger universe of the show in this episode, which is, yeah, this really strange mapping through the movement of the convenience store space. Um, anyway, and in terms of like thinking about that question, like the woods and its relationship to something like this convenience store space, it was really interesting to me to think about what the woods has and hasn't been doing in the return, right? Because so much of like the original series um, operated around this idea of the woods as like being the bastion of evil, like this being the space where evil lived. And, you know, there's something of the kind of like romantic, I mean, romantic in like the art history sense, not romantic in the lover sense um, of from Lynch in this regard, right? Like this kind of fascination and awe of nature and like this idea that nature sort of dwarfs and undoes the human in a certain kind of way. And the, and the woods in Twin Peaks always operated that way um what's been really interesting in the return is like i find lynch really playing up the idea of the woods but like the evil and like this idea of the woods as a character the woods as evil is like an absent presence here like it's not real we're, we're still waiting for there to be any kind of like actual connection 
of the woods to any kind of like evil Maldu. I mean, we have the, the crazy stuff with Jerry Horn. Um, there's been a few sequences here and there in the woods. Otherwise, I'm going to forget what they are now. But like, it's this, I don't know. I find it almost like an odd thing that we keep going back to the woods expecting mm-hmm. there to be something happening and then there isn't. And then we have this scene where, you know, like the quote evil in it is, is despair and is like the, the crisis of like, drug use and like uh, life at its end and like meaninglessness. And I, I don't know. I mean, like I think Lynch is doing something really interesting with like flipping that mytho- the quote mythology of the woods on its head. And instead we're, we're being given something totally different as like the, the sort of pain and, and quote evil at the center of this space here. I don't really have like a ton to say about that scene other than just like, it was really hard to watch. It's really, um, it's very bleak. I, I find the two of them kind of amazing in it. I mean, I, I think, uh, Alicia Witt does a lot with it, despite not having, you know, maybe many lines. Um, but the two of them together are like, it's so intense. It's again, it's like the inverse of Norman Ed. It's like this, you're watching something that's like too intimate. It's like you're, you're too, mm. you're too close to this thing that you feel like you really just shouldn't be that close to. It's, it's yeah. too much. Yeah. Well, and, and the fact that he's talking yeah. is not helping. <laughs> It's like he's whispering in your ear, which is so gross and upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the fact that he looks like, you know, a version of young Brad Dourif that's dying, like, doesn't help. Yeah. It's just such a, it's such a painful kind of, like, I don't know if this is the end. My guess is this won't be the end of this narrative. But, like, it's it's a painful moment in this arc that has been, like, a really important background arc in The Return, which is sort of tracing, like you know, the existence of, of drugs, like, in the town, and, like, what that is doing to people, and how how that's operating, and, like, this is a hard, a hard mm-hmm. moment to watch, like, this idea of, like, the bottom, and it's, like, whether Stephen actually kills himself or not, it's, like, you know, you feel very much like you are at the, at the bottom of something there, um, yeah. Byron, how did you feel, how, how are you feeling about the woods, how did you feel about, uh, about Gerson and Stephen? I, uh, don't have anything specifically to say about the woods, but with Gersten and Stephen, it's another instance of a portrait of a relationship, the sort I was talking about before, where, again, what we don't really know, because of the way things are presented and because of the nature of the series, that, that it will have a close that it, it's, and, and that it can't just go on forever, that it has a determinate close uh, in the way that the original series didn't. We don't, it's systematically ambiguous a lot of the time whether a portrait of a relationship is of the sort is uh, one that's involving an actual dramatic progression uh, and the question of whether Stephen really killed himself is a part of this um, or whether it's the portrait of a particular instance of something uh, some symptomatic of, of that relationship and uh, this is really I think the way that relationships are being portrayed throughout the series is that we, we, we just don't know what, um, and, and, and I think that the, the kinds of discussions typically of relationships that we get at the end, at the end of episodes at the roadhouse is a part of this. Uh, we're, we're meant to understand these portraits as, some, as uh, representatives of something larger a lot of the time as opposed to something that's actually moving a story along. And what's interesting yeah. and provocative about this scene is we don't know what is really going on, and it may never be answered. Uh, that's, that's part of what's provocative and interesting about it. We may never know whether this is really uh, 
uh, moving a story about a relationship, a, a relationship that implicates Becky in some way, or the rest of Twin Peaks in some way, or whether this is um, uh, a portrait of, or this, whether this is just a portrait of a relationship at, at a particularly horrific moment. Um, to move out of the woods, I mean, there's two major sequences left that I really want to talk about. And um, the first, I mean, is, is obvious. It's the Dougie sequence. And the main thing about that sequence that I'm curious to get everyone's thoughts on is how do we feel about if this is, I mean, let's work on the assumption that, that this is the sequence that wakes Cooper up. Let's just say yeah. that. Um, Cause I think it's, you know, it's certainly plausible and the staging is grand enough. Um, I, I wasn't sure if there was going to be staging grand enough, grand enough for that to happen, but I think this <laughs> qualifies. How do we feel about cinema or fiction or, you know, this sort of visual representation being the engine for, yeah. for that liberation? That's a good question. Uh, I hadn't thought about it that way, but that is a great point. The idea that like it's a moment from Sunset Boulevard that wakes him up. I mean, I love the idea that it's like cinema and fiction becomes, yeah, this engine for like life-changing, like, you know, uh, world-shaking uh, awakeness. I, I think that's great. I had been thinking about the Sunset Boulevard stuff, I don't know, maybe in connection again to, like, Lynch's... Pre in the previous episode, when Lynch, uh, the character of Gordon Cole, like, has the dream where he looks back at himself 25 years um, earlier. I, for me, it's like the Sunset Boulevard stuff almost functions that way here. It's like this idea of of the past literally i mean cinema's past but then more explicitly again this idea of like sunset boulevard being the film that lynch always sort of um cites as his favorite film the one film that the people who like lynch know that he likes and he will talk about um i i don't know there's something fascinating about like that being the film that that he uses to wake dougie up and again the um this sort of like really fascinating idea to explicitly reference uh, what had been an implicit reference in the original show, which was calling David Lynch's character Gordon Cole was a reference to David Lynch's love of Sunset Boulevard. And then here that's just sort of blurred into this thing where it's all part of the same world. Um, I, I don't know. I thought all of that was like lovely, wonderful. <laughs> I think it's interesting that when there have been references to the real world, um, uh, with the notable exception of the dream with Monica Bellucci, um, they have often been to um, features of uh, well the pop culture, but well no the broad the broader the broader culture of the sort that Lynch would have received uh, in his early childhood. So the culture of the late '40s and early '50s, and I, I'm talking about I'm thinking of the the role of of, of the atomic bomb. And Hiroshima and Nagasaki in um, in Part Eight, and uh, the the broader significance of of, uh, of nuclear weapons in in the series, and so it's um, it's very interesting that uh, that uh, that yet again we are getting something that's must have been significant to Lynch from from childhood, uh, and that it, and that it is a film so about about aging. Yeah, um, I I was yeah I mean. In a way, just just like Dougie, this appearance of Sunset Boulevard set off a whole bunch of uh, free associations for me that I I'm not sure if I can present them in any clear or systematic way. Uh, but I um, was, of course, thinking about 
the character of Gordon Cole in Sunset Boulevard, a uh, movie producer, and um, all of the metatextual things that are involved in that, and how in the scene, Norma says, oh, it's the, the team is back together, the old team is back together, just like mm-hmm. you know, a, a comeback. And then, uh, but in, but then how for, in a, actually the old team is not back together, or at least not back together in the way that she thinks because they, Gordon Cole just wants Norma Desmond's car. Uh, and so there's, a, in fact, does not want to make a movie with her. Uh, and, um, and so there's this divorce between her understanding of the situation and that of, well, well the, the understanding of the rest of the world. And so, and in fact, that's actually another inverse of the situation for Big Ed and and uh, and, and Norma at the beginning of the episode, uh, where uh, um, uh, just in 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 that um, at the beginning of the episode, we're led to believe that Big Ed has this uh, that is, is suffering from a similar kind of divorce between his perception of things and reality, with this disappointment and. Norma saying, "Oh, I've got to, I've got to talk to uh, this guy," uh, um, but but that's resolved. And and whereas, as we know, uh, for for Norma Desmond, that is that is not resolved. That 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 divorce between her perception and reality is you know r- runs runs to the heart of that film. Um, so uh, I was also thinking of other ways in which it, it's it's kind of unusual for for Lynch to have these explicit pop culture references. Um, yeah. uh, I mean, we, we, we do get it, of course, and Wild at Heart. Some of that comes from, from, from Barry Gifford's novel. Like, I, I believe the Elvis stuff comes from that. But the Wizard of Oz stuff, I believe, was Lynch's own introduction to that film. And I was thinking of, of, uh, of just, well, I mean, it is part of what's so striking in that scene. Um, I think it's, it's very different from the way that... Um, um, pop culture references might appear in other sort of otherworldly or surrealistic films or contexts. I was thinking of the way that pop culture references uh, work in the films of Yorgos Lanthimos, uh, like the references to Rocky and in Dogtooth and Stand By Me and The Lobster, where that has the effect of almost sort of establishing uh, uh, a con- continuity between another world and ours as though they're connected by like a Kind of pneumatic tube of, uh, of of pop culture references, or suggesting maybe along more science fiction lines that this is this is our this is indeed our world, but it has changed in some fundamental way. And in, in the case of the lobster, whereas with Lynch, it seems that the pop culture references, and this is certainly the case with the the Monica Bellucci stuff, um, uh, it operates more like dream material, and, and and that's that's part of why it's so significant that some of this stuff comes from the culture of the late 1940s and early 1950s that that it's that these are this is the dream material going back to his childhood in in a lot of these cases i also think it's significant and neat that you know if we think about the other some of the other things actually basically all the other things that have seemed to kind of spark dougie's slash cooper's interest you know if you think about the um you know the old boxing poster. If you think about the um, the statue, if you think about even like the high heels and the cherry pie, you know these are all very you know nineteen fifties or earlier sort of Americana imagery. So it kind of makes sense that a film from that era. I mean, yes, obviously it has other more obvious direct connections like the name Gordon Cole, 
But it makes sense to me that that would sort of, if this is indeed the culmination of those sparks, I think that that fits in a, in a, in a lot of uh, very sensible ways. The cameo of a sort that we get from J. Edgar Hoover on the wall of the FBI uh, might you know, operate in, in similar terms. It's as though, uh, I mean, this is this, I was reminded of this when, when Kate said that time, just because time has passed, does not mean that there's been any progress. Uh, the fact that uh, uh, I, I have no idea whether uh, um, FBI agents' offices, in fact, have portraits of Jadker Hoover on them, but it's uh, uh, nevertheless a, a really startling choice uh, in this context. Again, a figure from that era um, uh, representing the, you know, well, I mean, exactly what, exactly what defenders of the FBI, FBI want to whitewash um, except when they're going so far as to whitewash Edgar Hoover. Uh, this is very interesting that that's explicitly placed there as though, you know, not exactly, not even really making a political remark, uh, but rather more just part of the, the dream material of David Lynch, that this is, this is what the FBI signifies for him. Yeah, it's interesting, the, this idea of like the <clears throat> signifiers of various times, which which we've also mentioned here as well in relation to like Audrey and Charlie's house. Uh, we haven't talked about the Audrey and Charlie scene here yet either, which is should be like the, the most important example of how time can be passing, but nothing can be changing, right? Like they are just stuck in this. Uh, I've heard people talk about like Sartre and, and No Exit or Bunuel and like the Exterminating Angel. It's like there is something that they are just not able to get out of what is going on with them. Anyway, um, so the idea that like that house has these sort of 40s, uh, 50s signifiers. Um, there's something interesting here, too, about how some of this, the, the kind of confusion of, of, yeah, the presence of different times in the set design and the signifiers. It, it maps interestingly onto the formal strategies that Lynch is using around simply not letting us know what time we're in most of the time. Um, I think you mentioned something about this, Simon, in relation to like Gersten and Steven, where we're just sort of in the middle of this all of a sudden, we have to like try to do mental math to figure out where we are and how we got here and what time we could possibly be in. Um, and like the other example of this that, that people talked about a lot uh, after this episode was the idea that we see Evil Coop text Las Vegas, question mark, uh, after he beats up Richard Horn. And, you know, people have been like, oh, this is this when he texts Diane and that was seven episodes ago. And, and it's such this big deal that we're getting this now. And like, can you believe this? And my, my first thought was actually like, aren't we are we sure that these are the same text messages? Like, why couldn't it just be that Coop is uh, texting her again about it? Because he asked her about it once and her answer was they haven't asked me yet. So he could be asking her again, <laughs> but like, it doesn't really matter. The mm -hmm. point is that again, it's just about this, this stuff about the timelines and like Lynch purposely repeating things and purposefully con confusing things is like yet another of his sort of tools to kind of unmoor us and put us in that constant position of not exactly knowing what's going on and where we are, which is again, a very different position than what most like television and, and films strive to put you in, which is like a position of unquestioned mastery where you're always in charge and you always know what's going on and all information is being carefully like coded and delivered to you. So you never have to have a moment of like even mild upset. And that's even true of like puzzle box films where you know that there's some grand intelligence behind it. That's going to get you there in the end. And with Lynch, it's the opposite of that. It's like you are, you are having to grapple with a world that just at its core doesn't make sense always, which is, let's be honest, has a lot more to do with like the world that we actually live in uh, than the other version. But anyway, as much as I'm, I'm kind of dreading it, I'm also sort of looking forward to when this is over, 
the inevitable attempts by superfans to make like Gantt charts or whatever that like chronologically order everything that's happening by universe or whatever. I've already seen a version of that. I've seen, oh, really? um, I think that time for cakes and ale podcast people made one. Um, and like, I looked through it and it was interesting and, and, you know, to their credit, they did a lot of work on it and they also acknowledged like it has mistakes in it. It's not full, all of that stuff, but it was interesting looking at it for me, how much I disagreed with a lot of what they put where. And, and all that did was really prove again, this idea that like, the show is simply not giving you enough information to like piece things together in an obvious way. It's like you can you can make claims as to like what the chart should look like, but the show isn't isn't giving you enough to allow you to do that with certainty, which which I thought mm. was fascinating. I was thinking about uh, when when Kate said that some people had been comparing the Audrey and Charlie scenes to Satwa's um, No Exit and uh, Boone Noel's The Exterminating Angel. I I thought I, at first I nodded like okay yeah that's that's good, but in fact, that that those comparisons understate the strangeness of these scenes yeah. because in um, that play and that film, at least we're given some sort of entrance into these spaces. We're given some sort of story about, or at least we 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 see characters entering those spaces, and, and then they can't leave. But with uh, with Audrey and Charlie, we don't even see the entrance. We're thrown in there uh, with yeah. the, in a sense, with them. Um, and um, and so uh, I think that uh, comparisons that would come to mind uh, more along those lines would be uh, would be Beckett, uh, especially Endgame. Yeah. Um, and um, as far as films, one uh, recent example of this kind of thing that that i that i liked quite a bit was um um the duke of burgundy by peter strickland where uh, and there again there's the question of you have the systematic ambiguity about whether uh, what is um whether something is really a dramatic progression or just the repetition or part of a rehearsal or mere artifice or something like that that's a good comparison actually yeah, I, that that Audrey and Charlie scene this week. It's like I didn't. I don't have as much to say about it just because it, like it, it almost feels very much like we've gone back to where we were in the first scene. It like it, you know, like last week's. It seemed like something new was coming out of it, or we were something different was happening. But instead, now it's like maybe again just this drift towards violence, right? That it ends with with Audrey attacking Charlie, but there isn't. Yeah, it's it's interesting how much Lynch is able to like make things unfold and move like have the appearance of progression but really there is no progression it's kind of fascinating actually the last sequence we should really talk about is in fact the last sequence of the episode and our our weekly or nearly weekly roadhouse sequence where full disclosure when i saw the full cast list come out my one thing was i was dreading the charlene appearance for no really good like logical reason except that i really really hated paper hearts i think that's an absolutely garbage little movie um, so, but that was really the last time I could think of even having seen her in anything. Totally not fair, but it's where my, my head went. And um, I know other people are dreading the Eddie Vedder appearance, but um, full disclosure, I, I like Pearl Jam, so it's fine for me. Sorry. <laughs> I'm going I'm to be that guy. Anyway, and I have to say, maybe it, I, I think it was not only because my expectations were very low, that everything about that sequence from the, the way that the Veil song, um, Axolotl, is folded in and then Charlene Yee's performance, the way that her smallness is used in relation to these, you know, comparatively lumbering guys who literally just, it's almost a relief when all they do is lift her <laughs> and, and remove her from the booth. 
and then this, this that crawl, and then of course that scream, and the way it climaxes with the with the track is just man. That was this was actually quite possibly my favorite concluding sequence to one of these episodes so far. Oh yeah, I think I think this might have been my favorite. Uh, like it, I don't know. I mean, this the road sweeping one that ends with Cooper staring at the statue is pretty great too. But but this one is like really something, and I. It's been interesting to, to, again, watch people sort of try to, like, parse it on the internet. And uh, as uh, Simon and, and Byron saw this earlier, too, there is a, a YouTube video that's now been made that compares the Charlene sequence with the coop crawling towards the light socket, the plug-in uh, sequence. And, you know, and, like, certainly I think this person just sort of matched the screens up and then, and then you know, edited it, like, worked them backwards so that you can see how, how similar they are. Um, and there is something quite uncanny about, like, how closely they map onto each other, when the, particularly when the scream kicks in. Um, I think there's something to that. I, I'm, I'm less interested in maybe this, uh, the literal ideas that people have been taking out of that, which is, like, people, bodies in Twin Peaks are sort of being forced to enact things that are happening in Las Vegas or something. I, I didn't, I didn't buy that so much, but what I really loved about the Charlene E sequence is like, it's kind of, um, I don't know, like the emotional climax of this episode where I don't know about you guys, but like, I felt pretty battered by the end of this episode. Like I felt like I had, I had been really like, put through the ringer and not all in a bad way. I mean, that's sort of the thing when they call it a roller coaster, you start off high before you go low. Right. I mean, it, I, I felt very thrown around, like very um, upset really by the end of it. And then we get this scene in the roadhouse. And like, as you say, Simon, there's something about Charlene's like physical appearance where she's already quite small. And then the way that they put her on the floor with the folded legs, she becomes like a, a child. Like she looks very much like a, a child, a little kid. And then when she starts crawling and, and she's amidst this like forest of like adult legs and she's like weeping and looking down at the ground and she doesn't seem to even sort of have enough awareness to be able to like look after herself or like to figure out what is happening to her um I don't know I found it like a perfect summary of like all of the kind of feelings that you're left with throughout the episode which is like terror and like helplessness and the sense of being moved like against our will right like being taken somewhere where we don't know where we're going and like and then particularly after the Catherine Coulson scene, like almost a sort of rage, like like the rage that's part of grief, right? The idea of like fury that that this could happen, that we could lose someone like her and that, that time has to take people away from us. And like, I for me, I just think that the Charlie Nee sequence like does all of that uh, beautifully. I, you know, mm-hmm. I, for me, I don't need it to be part of anything. I just I just loved it on its own. Yeah. yeah. The only the only thing I'll add is that it was quite refreshing to have um, to have the music so folded into the fabric of the sequence and not just be background, not just be, you know, credit stuff. Um, and not to, you know, those sequences are fine, but to have it actually be part of the emotional register of a sequence was, uh, was really refreshing. I thought it was terrific. Uh, one thing that I neatly thought of when it in connection with her screams were the screams of Laura Palmer. Uh, and uh, the very the very similar punctuated screams Laura Palmer has in Beyond Life and Death episode in the Red Room. Very and, and so I, I was thinking of the ways and, and, and ways in which uh, Laura Palmer can be representative of other kinds of trauma of trauma beyond her own and particularly mm. the trauma of women and also in connection with this her mother Sarah Palmer also being subjected to harassment by a biker. And, and in each case, we have some kind of disassociation where, where I mean, in, in your guys' podcast discussing the scene with Sarah Palmer, 
you were talking about whether um, Sarah was was feigning her screams or whether it was some kind of ruse. Yeah, I'm not convinced that that's well. That's that that wouldn't be the question that I would ask. It's it's rather or, or rather I I would want the emphasis to be on the way in which I would prefer the emphasis to be on the way in which disassociation, delayed reactions, uh, not screaming right away, but only you know uh, mm. after after several moments are are uh, among the um are, are how that is that kind of disassociation is very characteristic of trauma and the long term yeah. effects of trauma and so we certainly see this with with Charlene Yi in, in the roadhouse um i i think we can characterize uh, Sarah Palmer's uh, screams in the um in the bar in the previous episode in similar terms um and it's something that that we've seen um several times uh, in the past, uh, in previous iterations of, of Twin Peaks with, with Laura Palmer. Um, for example, uh, her delayed, delayed reaction when Annie Blackburn appears in, in her bed in, in Fire Walk with yeah. her. Um, and uh, there's something, um, of course, unnerving and uncanny about, about these, but also very, uh, very real and very realistic. To, I mean, it, it seems strange to characterize Sarah Palmer's uh, a reaction to the biker in the previous episode is realistic, but I know, but I think that there's something. Uh, there's a very realistic depiction of of the disassociation involved in trauma in each of these instances, and it's just another way in which, again, uh, Sir, Laura Palmer uh, ends up having this broader significance. Her her trauma has this broader significance that um, um, that. Um, maybe we, we we didn't we didn't know or we didn't um, um, uh, that that really that it really is the um, the task of the one of the tasks of the the current series to to bring out and I, I was I mean I was also thinking I, I don't I don't know what else to say about this other than we had a murder of a young woman in, in the news recently broadcast in a video. Depicting yeah. a world very, very much continuous with with the world of Twin Peaks in, in many ways, uh, uh, namely the, the murder of Heather Heyer. It's you know sort of just an accident of circumstance that Laura Palmer and the kind of the, the trauma that she represents could have could have that broader significance. I was also thinking of the woman who the body that was just found in this the off the coast of Denmark with the submarine, which is like another very odd story about a woman being murdered, but. Um, Anyway, um, the uh, yeah no, I think I think all of that is really interesting. I hadn't thought about this idea of like the the way in which kind of delayed reactions work uh, in in Twin Peaks and, and Lynch generally, and I think all of that is like really spot on. Um, I like the idea of like the Charlene Yee sequence almost being something like a very delayed reaction to other things happening in the episode, or like an echo of a reaction. Um, all of that. Uh, and then I think we probably should wrap up. So the last couple of things I'll just throw out there really quickly is the roadhouse sequence in the middle uh, where James and the British guy go to the oh, roadhouse was yeah. like one of the true, truly weirder parts of this episode where we get the like ZZ Top song playing and like people dancing with like zooming cameras, all very strange. Um, 
I found it really interesting that, like, James himself, like, the show is very straightforward about, I, I found James quite creepy in that scene. Like, the way that he talks to the woman is, is creepy. And, like, I, you know, maybe we're not supposed to think that. Maybe you could think, oh, James is just this nice guy and he doesn't understand what's happening. But, like, I don't know. There's something interesting about the way in which the show, like, gives credence to her perspective as, like, this woman who doesn't really want to be bothered by him. And it's like, it, I don't know. I thought that was interesting. Um, and then, of course, it, it explodes into this, like, much more extreme violence than would ever be possibly reasonable in response to any of that. Um, I was kind of interested to hear about how you felt, Simon, about the green glove punching guy in that scene. Um, I wasn't crazy about it. I'm maybe starting to share some of your concerns about, like, what they're going to do with him. Um, I, the last weirdo thing I'll say is that the guy who played uh, Renee's husband there, I was like, who is that guy? Is he just sort of like a Stephen Dorff lookalike? And then somebody, I think Keith Ulick pointed out that he's the actor who, in the X-Files episode, where Scully has like the one night stand with the guy who has the tattoo that has Jodie Foster's voice, that was him. And I was like, holy crap, that guy does not look like he is aged 20 years in no, between those two episodes. Wow. But um, anyway, so there's that. We had the great like Stan Rizzo sequence again at the FBI. We had a little more of that. Uh, we had Chantel and Hutch with their kind of like philosoph philosophizing about like their sort of violence and murdering in relation to like the state of America, which I think is a scene that, that you know, is going to get left out in most discussions of it, but I actually thought was quite fascinating. Like the idea of like them positioning their own sort of like murderous uh, behavior in relation to like the genocide that founded America. You know, it's like maybe it's all a little spot, like a little too heavy handed, but I thought it was interesting. Um, Anyway, so those were just the last few things I wanted to get. Oh, and, and also the Duncan Todd being killed scene. Yes. Um, Chantel coming Patrick in. And, Fischler. Exactly. Um, the thing, like, the only thing I would have to say about that that scene that I, caught, I thought was fascinating was, again, that Lynch still is able to find ways to, like, disorient and surprise me as a viewer in terms of, like, staging a murder scene. You know, like, it, all of that caught me really off guard. Like, it, it, the, the way that her shoulder just comes into the frame out of nowhere and, like, blows their heads off was, like, crazy. Anyway, those are the last things I wanted to get on the table. I did. My, the only thing I really want to say about the James sequence is that I find it funny that they lock him up again, even though he clearly didn't do anything. Not really. I mean, the other guy did all the punching. He was just there, but he just gets arrested on principle. God damn it, James. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also am wondering if we're ever going to get a James and Ed and Big Ed scene. Because it's like, he's his uncle. We haven't had any of that either, which is interesting. That's true. Anyway. Well, there's also no mention of Annie when the concept of family oh, yeah. is discussed, which was a yes. little... Oh, poor Annie. Sad Annie. Uh, but yeah, but Byron, did you have any last things you wanted to get on the table? Just a couple of things. One was, uh, I, I, I did like the... Uh, or there was something about the... I, I've, I've mentioned... I, I said that um, th there's quite a bit in the current series that seems to lift directly from a racer head. Uh, but one, one thing that occurred to me uh, in connection with the FBI office in Las Vegas is how much that, uh, that the FBI agent yelling Wilson is uh, just like, it seems to be a descendant of the boss in the pencil factory in a razor head, you know, yelling, yelling, Hey Paul. And, uh, and how much that is also kind of a repetition of a kind of Hollywood type, of of the kind of um, pop culture that Lynch would have been raised on in the late '40s, early '50s, of the the overbearing uh, a half of a comedy duo like a, yeah. like a Bud Abbott or Jackie Gleason uh, kind of thing, and it was just interesting. Again, uh, and it was just interesting how again Las Vegas, uh, the Las Vegas uh, scenes are uh, the site for sitcom types. 
Um, and um, and I guess in, in just in connection with with Las Vegas and and Dougie, I was I was uh, struck by the way that he particularly lingers over over true um, in, in his repetitions of what uh, Jamie E says. Uh, um, that I suppose that's the last thing he says before turning on the TV is 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 the word true, uh, and it's kind of lingering like a mantra. Uh, and I do think that. Dougie's repetitions should might might be seen in connection with mantras of, of you know in in transcendental meditation. Not that I have a deep acquaintance with that topic, but it's something. But but the 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 um, the lingering effects of words uh, is seems important there, like in case of mantras, and also uh, Dougie as uh, himself something like a measure of of truth. Like back back when he um, interjected in the meeting, saying, "You know, he's lying." Whatever uh, Tom Sizemore's uh, character was saying, it seemed important, but for reasons that I, I'm still trying to figure out. Yeah, <laughs> like like many things, all of us still uh, in a state yeah. of of slight confusion about things. Yeah. My uh, my own my perhaps my only regret about this podcast is that we didn't find or really didn't make an effort to find someone who is an expert in like Buddhism and or TM to uh, help tease out some of those connections, because I think we're all sort of uh, grasping in the dark when it comes to that stuff. But you know, what's life without a regret or two anyway, (laughs) thank you. uh, Thank you for joining us, Byron. Um, Where can people uh, find you online if they want to go harass you about this stuff? Uh, Well, I suppose Instagram is fine. Uh, Byron nine, six, one, nine. Uh, thank you again for having me. It's it's always a pleasure, and it's always a pleasure to listen to the show. Aww, that's nice, oh, Byron. Thank, thank you, you for much, thank Byron. you for coming on. We really appreciate it. Yes, and uh, for anyone who is hungry for more uh, content, um, we are recording another sorted cinema this week. That's myself and uh, former guest of this show, Ricky D, and our pals. Uh, we we talk about. Other film stuff this week. We're actually recording it immediately after this podcast. We're going to be talking about the Safety Brothers' Good Time. Oh, you've seen it. Stuff. I haven't seen it yet. Ah, I want yeah. to see it soon. It's, yeah. Well, you're going to have to hear the episode to hear how we felt about it. Ah, and yeah. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about some other stuff too. Uh, do check that out on uh, over on SortedCinema.com as well. And you can find Kate on Twitter at Cinement. That's C-I-N-E-M-E-N-T. And you can find me on Twitter at hollow mind spelled like it sounds and that's about it for us thank you all so much for listening we'll be back with the penultimate episode next week clean shirt new shoes i don't know where i'm going to silk suit black tie i don't need a reason why i Girl is crazy about a sharp dressed man. Gold watch, diamond ring. I am needing not a single thing. Links, stick pin When I go out, I'm up to you in 
they come running just as fast as they can. Every girl is crazy about a shark-dressed man. 